Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Jonathan Polk. Um, Jonathan is um, currently the General Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer at, uh, at Melio, and he's been in that position for just over a year. Um, Jonathan's a bit of a veteran. He spent um, most of his career both at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for 20 years and seven years also at American Express. So it's a fantastic story. Um, lots of things that we talked about in Jonathan's own personal journey and professional journey, including um, balancing compliance with culture, building trust with the team and consumers, and walking the tightrope, I like this, the tightrope of compliance triage. Um, and Jonathan talks a little bit about uh, moving to the world of startup, having been um, in uh, large enterprise and big government too. So it's a fascinating discussion as always. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax and enjoy the episode. Jonathan Polk, now you've let me call you JP. Welcome to the podcast. It's fantastic to have you on board. I can't wait to have our discussion. Great to be here, Jim. Now, Jonathan, I don't know if you've listened before, but if you haven't, I usually start off with a question that goes something like this. Um, Jonathan Polk, JP, you weren't always the general counsel of Melio. You had a life before there. Tell us something about the JP story. Why don't you start off with what got you into law in the first place, interested? And then once we move away from that, we'll talk about the early stages of your career and we'll take it from there. Absolutely. So, Jim, I would say the things that attracted me to law were my impression of what was required to do the job. It was a lot about logic, uh, about communication, and importantly, about providing advice and counsel. I found that very attractive. Uh, and um, making that kind of assessment as a kind of a, a youngster, a teenager, you're, you're, you might have been 18 or 19 or 20, is that what's the attraction? It wasn't the kind of courtroom, courtroom drama that we were used to at that time, the LA laws of the world? My father was a lawyer. And, Is that right? And, uh, okay. So yeah. I, I actually was for a long time reluctant to go into the law precisely because I knew that LA law was not a realistic depiction. Is that right? It is. Uh, did, 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 he say, did, did he say things like JP... To say things like, hey, JP, you know that show you're watching? It's not really like that. Did he actually make that clear to you and make no, you think about it saw, twice? First of all, he, he would call me Johnny, yeah. but but you can definitely call me JP. Yep. Uh, but but <laughs> okay. he, uh, uh, I think the way I, I got this impression wasn't so much by what he said, by what he did. Uh, and I saw that it yeah. was a lot about digging into the books, being prepared and uh, wasn't so yep. much about yep. uh, wearing glamorous suits and gliding in and out of meetings. T typically not. So, JP, tell us a little bit about the early part of your career. Um, uh, tell us about that and probably some pivotal moments that, that you now, looking back, 
um, you regard those as pivotal or crossroads. Talk a little bit about that. Sure, sure. So I was very fortunate to have uh, a close personal relationship with one of my professors at law school. And he had a former student at uh, the New York Fed. And I got introduced to her and that resulted in me going to the Fed uh, and, and introduced me in a way I hadn't previously thought about it to the idea of uh, really supporting the mission of the organization you're, you're working for. And so uh, I, I really fell in love with the idea of working at the New York Fed where it was very much working in the public interest. Uh, wasn't so much in the first instance for me an attraction to finance. It was an attraction to doing what I thought of as public service in the law. Uh, so that, that's the, the sort of first kind of thought I have about my entry into professional practice and, and how I went about that decision. And, and I'm very lucky to say, Jim, that uh, that really paid off for me. The, the experience I had there was extraordinary. And, and it brings me to the answer to your sort of part B of your question about pivotal moments. Uh, during the financial crisis in 2008, uh, I was privileged to work on the uh, monitoring team that supported the Fed's investment in AIG, the large insurance company that was at risk of failing. And that was a pivotal moment for me. It, it actually made me feel like uh, I could take on unfamiliar challenges and figure out how to navigate in a way that I hadn't previously uh, fully felt that level of confidence. And it's usually those experiences, isn't it, JP? Those that we haven't had before, those that seem um, outside of our capability, they are the ones that um, teach us the most, that stretch us the most, and actually teach us um, that with kind of uh, with dedication, commitment, and a willingness to be open. Um, and learning those opportunities there, that's where the growth is. And that's where the real, for me, the real satisfaction and learning comes in. Um, and the kind of empowering bit too, the not quite the I can do anything, but the, um, the really being open to the, open to the next challenge and recognising you know, how, um, how to attack that next challenge. Does that, does that resonate with you? It, it resonates deeply with me, Jim. As a matter of fact, uh, prior to the time that I joined the AIG monitoring team, there were people in the bank that we called the Fed in those days the bank. Uh, I was being asked if I'd be interested in leading the supervisory team uh, that oversaw Citigroup globally. And my immediate reaction was always, how on earth do you think I could ever do that? And I didn't have uh, really the comfort level. Uh, and then as a result of the work that I did in the crisis, uh, I felt like that's a challenge I could tackle. And I did actually take that job. And it was another growth opportunity for me, uh, another exercise in operating out of my comfort zone that had all the benefits you just mentioned. Yep. And, and so tell me, how, what's the impact that those kind of experiences have had on the way that, let's say, the way you manage people, your teams, um, the guidance that you try and provide? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think, I think there's nothing like having to rely on other people's expertise 
to grow your skills as a leader. So it's one thing when you're working in an area where you sort of came directly up through the ranks and the people that you're talking to are doing what you used to do. You have a certain kind of point of view and, and maybe an approach. If you're talking to someone who actually has an unfamiliar set of skills and expertise, uh, you have a different kind of conversation. You have to adapt and you have to learn how to leverage that expertise, apply your complementary abilities, whether it's judgment or contextual understanding or whatever, but it's a different relationship and it's a growth relationship and one that I actually enjoy very much uh, and continue to rely on to this day. And JP, I actually think that is, that's such a huge part of successful leadership because typically, now it depends on the environment. So for example, I can see if you're a, let's say you're a partner at a law firm and you've risen to the head of your practice area, the, re, the likelihood is that, is that you probably know as much about that practice area as anyone else. So the people you're supervising, um, you're supervising with an um, incredible insight into that area. Now, that's one kind of leadership. But then, let's say, moving in-house and then taking on a number of functions, that, whether it's legal compliance and related, other related or not so related functions, I think being able to then, exactly what you've said, be able to, to become a leader in an area where you are not a specialist uh, and when you are not the subject matter or the domain expert, I think learning that skill set opens up enormous opportunities. And certainly a number of the GCs that I've spoken to here, that's the feedback I get. It was because they were open to be able to, I think, deliver the most success for them um, in their careers. It certainly exponentially multiplies your impact. Uh, so being able to leverage expertise and cultivate yep. talent uh, yep. in areas yep. other than your own um, makes you able to contribute in ways you wouldn't otherwise be able to. And, and for me, at least, it is uh, a source of great uh, enjoyment and pride and, and brings me uh, to the office every day looking forward to what I have to do. And, and Jim, uh, I will tell you, and it is absolutely true, that with very few exceptions throughout my career, I have felt uh, really excited about my role and my responsibilities. And, uh, and have, I can honestly say I've had the, the good fortune to work for great organizations and to have great jobs. I expect, having been the beneficiary, JP, of that, and having seen how important that is to your own personal development, satisfaction, well-being, um, that presumably you try to emulate that for the team around you, for the, for the people that you work with, um, and you use that as you know, part of the inspiration. Have I, got, have I got that right? You absolutely do. And, and I have opinions on, on how to go about doing that. I think that yeah. uh, when you're dealing with a team, uh, you have to make sure that you are providing them with an environment in which they can succeed uh, that, and, and where they see their personal growth and development coming, happening as a result of the work you give them and the role that they're playing. Um, and, and I always say this to my colleagues, you know, there aren't enough pizza parties or ice cream socials in the world to replace 
a strong sense that you're engaged in something that's providing value to the organization and that you're growing and benefiting from it at the same time. And that to me is the strongest possible formula for engagement and high morale. Yeah. It's funny, and people will have heard me say time and time again. I'm going to say it again because it's it's because I think it just um, it's easier to say and it's incredibly impactful. But people ultimately, we're all pretty simple. What we want is we want to be heard, to be respected, a, vo- a voice that that um, that is respected, and we want to feel like we're making a contribution to where we're working, and that what we do actually matters. There is nothing worse than waking up and saying, it doesn't matter what I do today. It's not going to make a difference. That is a terrible position to be in. So if we can all provide employees, team members with those few things, an environment which is safe, where their voice is heard and respected, where they feel like they're making a contribution, and also what you've said, where they're learning, they're actually growing. Okay, my next question, um, JP, um, 20 years, I think, um, is the time um, that you spent at the Federal Reserve. Um, and then you t- I think the next move was to American Express. Have I got that right? Just compare and contrast for me a couple of the key, I suppose, the key learning differences for you um, between the two. What was it, let's say, that American Express provided you in your own learning journey, in your growth, that um, uh, that's you know that was supplemental to what you had achieved and learned at the Federal Reserve. Yeah, sure. So there are a couple of things I'd point to right off the bat. The first one is that American Express is a for-profit organization. Uh, the Federal Reserve is not, and of course. Uh, won't come as a surprise to you that that drives a dynamic. Uh, that is different in those two places. Uh, And that materializes in lots of ways. Uh, The management of costs, uh, for one thing, uh, but not only that. The second thing is that American Express, probably as much as any company in the country, puts a premium on leadership and the cultivation of talent and has, in my opinion at least, elevated that to an art. Uh, And I learned a tremendous amount about that through working with incredibly talented leaders and also through being uh, expected to provide a level of leadership uh, that I hadn't previously been asked to provide. And it was actually part of my assessment, the performance of my assessment in a way that it wasn't at the Fed. Uh, and, and it's all very organized uh, and there's lots of support and resources to, to do that, which makes it a focus in a way it hadn't previously been for me. And, and I, I absolutely embraced that and enjoyed it and benefited tremendously from it. Yep. Um, and, and any specific, can you, are there any specific examples, JP, as to the kind of the strategies that American Express adopted at the time, which was you know, new to you, um, but really made a difference in the development of those leadership skills? So, so one is what I alluded to vaguely a moment ago, that 
leadership and cultural behaviors are methodically measured and reflected in performance evaluations and as a result compensation. Point number one. So that's just people perform to the metrics that are used to determine their compensation. And so that's a really, you know, the incentives were in the right places. The second thing I'd point out, Jim, is the highly evolved mechanisms that were used to identify and nurture talent. And there was a process that was used, and I imagine is still used today, uh, to identify what people are interested in and make sure there is a close alignment between those interests and the assignments that they get, and they're given a path forward. Keep doing this, it's relevant because we hope you'll be able to do one of these few things in a year or two. It gives context, it gives reason, and it makes each person, as you said a few minutes ago in a slightly different context, makes them feel seen and understood for who they are, that there's a plan for them, and that the time they're spending is worthwhile. And I think particularly for a large organization, that's critical. Amex did it, I think, uh, extremely well. And, and I learned a lot from that. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, the key, t anything that we haven't spoken about in terms of the key takeaways for you that you are now implementing um, with your team, um, because I want to, there's a couple of things I want to do. I want to move over to Melio soon. Um, but it, b before we do that, anything specific that you've now kind of adopted and applied to your own team that you learned from, um, from your days at Amex? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think uh, really it, it boils down to some behaviors that I, I uh, adopted there um, where I found the, the most important thing for me to do was to feature uh, the work of the people entrusted to my care. And that's the way I think about uh, the people that, that are in my reporting line and to make sure that they are known in the organization, to make sure that when we're discussing work that they did, they are the ones that are doing the speaking. Um, and that's something I've, I've used consistently through my time at Amex and since. Uh, I, I guess I would point to that, Jim. Yeah. And how important is that too? I wish it's one of those things I wish I'd learned a little bit earlier, how important it is to have the voices, not your own voice, actually, the voices of those around you, those that you have um, supported, enabled. Um, uh, it took me a while to learn that, not, not even in a leadership position, even as a part of a team. You know, sometimes when we're a bit younger in our career, we feel like we need to jostle for position and we feel like um, uh, we need we need to stand out. And in a sense, you know, that's just part of the the, the ambition and the competitive spirit that, um, that a number of us have. But I think if I had doubled down more on lifting others around me and having their voices heard, I think the long in the long run, um, they would have been better off. I would have been better off, and it just that one that one came to me a little bit later. Hopefully, not too late, but a little bit later um, in the development of my career. Yeah, it, it, 
I, I think it, it, it became really clear to me uh, when I arrived at Amex uh, because yeah. it, was, it was just understood your ultimate value to the organization is not the work you do yourself. Yeah. It's the work you do allowing other people to make big contributions. There are yep. only so many hours in the day. There's only so much any one person can do. But if you have a team of 10 direct reports, each of them has large teams reporting to them. Uh, yeah. Collectively, they'll make a giant impact, and that's yeah. that's not just ethical. Though I think it is, it has the benefit of being ethical that you cultivate yeah. talent, and it's a nice yeah. thing. It's also just makes sense from a it business makes business sense. A absolutely. Um, so I think you had about seven years at Amex, and more recently, I think only in the last uh, twelve months or so, um, you've moved over um, to a company called Melio. Tell us a little bit about Melio, what it does, your current role, and and why you made the move. Um, and then I'll jump into a, a few more questions there. Excellent. Three parts to the question. <laughs> what does Melio do? Uh, yep. Melio uh, does something wonderful. Melio helps mostly, but not exclusively, small businesses manage their finances, pay their bills, pay their suppliers. It creates an easy way for business people that don't want to spend a lot of their time managing their finances because they have a bakery, they have a chocolate shop, they do, they have a passion for what they do. They're important parts of their community, but they don't want to spend a lot of time paying bills. Melio makes that easier. That's not the whole story, but it's at the core of our being. What I do for Melio is I am the general counsel and chief compliance officer, and so I have the privilege of serving the team of people that serve our clients. And that's the way I look at it. Uh, it's all about service, collectively as a company and individually in my role. And so familiar to you what a general counsel does and what a chief compliance officer does. Uh, sure. Give me a sense, yeah, and give me a sense of the size of the company now and the size, size of your team, just so I've got a, um, and, and if you can yeah. disclose, you know, broad, broad revenue, um, just, just so the audience gets a bit of a sense of the extent that you can disclose, a bit of, bit of a sense of um, uh, the size of the organization. Sure, sure. So the founders are located in Israel, in Tel Aviv. Our headquarters uh, is in the U.S. We, our market is the U.S. We have offices in New York and Denver. We have a total of just less than 600 people. Uh, we are a dynamic company growing incredibly quickly, processing now, to give you an idea uh, on the financial side, in yep. the order of $2 billion a month in payments. Wow. Tell, tell me, what caused the move? There you are. You've, you've had 20 years at the Federal Reserve. You've had, you've had seven or so at Amex. You're, you know, you could, it's pick and choose what you want your next career move to be, JP. And you've effectively chosen a startup um, in the fintech services space. Give us a little bit about the why. So the why begins with an interest in building something. Uh, and to really have an opportunity to be part of the core team that creates a great organization. That had tremendous appeal for me. And then, well, which one? Why Milio? Really three things. Uh, the first one is, the mission, I've always covered that with you. I'm a mission-oriented person. I love Milio's mission. I was attracted to it. The second thing is uh, that I 
perceived Melio, I saw Melio as an organization that was truly looking to do the right thing. I wasn't going to be coming in as the only person in the room that wanted to be compliant, that wanted to do things the right way. Um, I was satisfied in the discussions we had leading up to my decision to join that the intentions were in the right place. And I'm pleased to say that what I've learned in the 14 or 15 months since I've arrived is that that, that was right. That is the way it's working and, and I'm delighted and feel very fortunate. And then the top reason, honestly, is the people. And Jim, you know, like I, I've, I'm sure this is true for you, but I can certainly say for me, I have never been happy in any role when I didn't enjoy working with the people that I deal with every day. And I, I have to say, uh, I, I am forming relationships with the people here uh, that are a source of real joy. I, I just enjoy spending time with them. I enjoy working with them. Uh, I care about them. Uh, and, and I feel like I'm part of a community that is a very caring and nurturing community. And that means the world to me. Fantastic. Now, now, JP, I expect there are a number of GCs out there listening to this. Um, and they're, um, uh, they're perhaps, let's say, in um, uh, organisations that have been around a little bit longer, um, where the path is perhaps a little bit more trodden, well-trodden. Um, and the opportunities in the fintech space, they're, um, let's face it, it's an exploding space. So, Tell me about what is the advice that you would give to, to, to a GC or someone looking to move into the GC position of essentially into the fintech space early, where we're still going to call you a startup, albeit you've got 600 employees. Um, what, are, what are some of the advice that you'd give? What are some of the things that you've learned in the first 14 or so months, your time there, that you, you didn't know, that, but that's been really, or that perhaps you wish you'd known? Yeah. Um, multi-dimensional question. Try to, yeah. to navigate through. Tell me if I, if I hit the things that you're... That's right. I should have told you to take a notepad and a pen and write it all down because sometimes I do go on a little bit too much, JP. But, um, no, not at all, yeah. actually. I'm, I'm enjoying it, Jim. It's great. And, and Good. you just keep me honest here. If I'm not getting to the things you I will. Hear, you'll let me know. Yeah. But, uh, but like, the, I think... The first thing is to decide how early, like yeah. early stage companies are actually a diverse group, right? And I make an analogy to uh, sort of human development. So there's, mm. there's the toddler, there's the yep. teenager, there's the young adult, there's the fully formed organization that's been, in or, been around long, maybe public, has a lot of infrastructure. Yep. So a person yep. looking at this space should probably calibrate how early in the development cycle they want to get involved yeah um, jp I'd, pro and, I'd probably add to that I'd, I'd probably add to that really the um embryonic stage to yeah. where you where you, you yeah. haven't actually yet found perhaps product market fit um the funding is not entirely so survival is a question um and you know taking on that survival risk so i, I think we'll probably add that as, as as one of the stages too Excellent, excellent addition, yep. and I, I, I endorse yeah. it. But but yep. there are sort of there are sort of jobs to be done that yeah. vary depending on stage yeah. uh, of development. 
And I say, you know, for any relatively early stage company, things are not so settled that you can that you can sort of lean back and, and sort of think in, in grand terms. You're pretty much always dealing with the alligator closest to the boat, I say. And so, <laughs> I love that. you know, you kind of, if you're, if you're at a very early stage company, you're maybe thinking about more fundamental issues than some yeah. company that's been around for two or three years. They maybe have some beginnings, but need embellishment and so on. And you get to a point where you're in the business of refining. So good for people looking at the space to think, do I want to refine? Do I want to create the first strokes or where in between on that spectrum? That's one thing. The other thing that I'd say, uh, and actually I got good advice uh, as I was looking at the market and thinking about what I wanted to do. Someone once told me, at least for me, you probably don't want to be the first sensible person they've ever spoken to. So, you know, you don't want to be the only person in the room who's saying, look, you know, let's take into account risk. And people are saying, you know, we didn't get to the startup world to, to think about constraints. We challenge reality. We don't accept reality. And, and there's a balance to be had there. You do want to have a mentality of not accepting everything has to be the way it is today. Otherwise, there'd be no startups. On the other hand, you don't want to have such a hostility, for example, in my world, the regulatory environment that you disregard it. So there's another sort of nuanced play, place for balance. Does that make yeah. sense, Jim? Yeah, it makes perfect sense, actually. And we could talk about this for, let me tell you, JP, we could talk about this for hours, having done my own startup in 2016 and gone through some of those phases. And um, so I absolutely, um, uh, what you say absolutely resonates. And, and often it's, those, those phases are um, reflected, I often call them, in just different levels of chaos. And it's often different levels. It is messy. It is hard. It is chaotic. Um, as you grow and as you become, you know, you get the systems and the structures and the infrastructure in place, some of the chaos um, becomes a little more ordered. But it's typically not for the faint-hearted, and it's typically not for the um, everything, um, everything in its place type of kind of um, personality. That's that, that's what I'd say. But I do, I really do like JP the way you have identified really understanding what phase um, is the company actually in, um, and you know. You know, how early is it a toddler? Is it a child? Is it a teen, teenager? In my terms, what's the level of chaos um, that you're experiencing? And, and does that actually suit um, what you're looking to do, how you're looking to contribute? And, and sometimes the risk appetite uh, you as a GC uh, want to take on board. Yeah, I, I will add one more thing, Jim, if, yep. if it's helpful. Um, important for someone coming in at a general counsel level to make a judgment about the rhythms and ways decisions are made. Because you're joining, in most instances, uh, a team that is either larger or smaller, but in earlier stage companies, built around one or more founders yeah. who have an, a, a known zone of comfort for making decisions. 
And so one of the things that I think you have to assess from the beginning is, am I going to be relevant and part of that team? And am I going to be able to become a part of the group that decides and charts the course for things? And lawyers, for better or worse, are sometimes included in that more or less. And no matter what is said in, in the discussions, you have to earn your way into that role. Yep. Um, yep. But you at least want them to have that hope and expectation that you can sort of be brought into the fold, if, if that makes sense. And so that's just another factor I would say ought to be top of mind for anyone talking to a company like this. And JP, I like the way you put that, really kind of understanding the zone of comfort, I think is the way you put it, of your founders, because any startup company is driven by and large, certainly in the early days, it's founder-driven, founder-led, um, and you want to be relevant. We all want to be as relevant we could possibly be, whatever position we take. So as a, as a new GC, you want to be as relevant. And presumably you've made that move and anyone thinking about that move is doing so because they want to be more than, let's say, a technical black letter lawyer. They want to be relevant in the, the the making and growing of a business, the creation of something that right now doesn't exist. Um, uh, yeah, so so I, I do like the way you put that. I think that's really that that's resonated with me. Understanding the zone of comfort and making sure that you can work within. Uh, that zone of comfort of the founding team. Um, identify for me what what is the what are the two or three most significant challenges that you have faced that you're willing to share um, in you know the first twelve months or so, um, and then so that's the first question I'm going to ask, and then looking into the future, what do you think? The challenges are going to be the top of mind challenges again to the extent that you're willing to share are going to be for you and milio sure so so i i would say to you that the first challenge is to figure out what's a productive way to spend your time to identify the alligators closest to the boat so uh to to prioritize in an environment, Jim, where, as you well know, you could do a thousand things, you have to yep. decide which five are really the highest value. And I think that's that's a, a doable thing. I, I enjoy doing it personally. I think that's the value you bring as a general counsel. Um, but that was job number one. Like, yeah. what am I going to focus on first? Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think people appreciated that that I didn't try and run in all directions at the same time. The second thing I think is to do what I was talking about a minute ago, sort of a hybrid, get involved in the right way with people, understand how they operate, bring value and uh, manage expectations effectively. So it's sort of a combination of things, number two, so that people feel like you're on the right point you're doing things they understand will bring the company value and they're willing to fund those things, either in terms of yep. staff or in terms of outside counsel or other resources. Yep. 
and, and you bring everyone along and make them feel like this is really great. Because you want to, I think, right up front, make people feel glad that you've arrived. Um, because everybody looks at the arrival yeah. as a lawyer, as something. Yeah. And if you're a lawyer and a compliance <laughs> officer, it's kind of a double whammy. Like, oh my goodness, is this guy going to just say, we can't do anything anymore? We have to stop? Or are they going to help us? Yep. So uh, that would be the third thing. Really making yep. sure the challenge is to make sure, as I think we are focused on here and, and aligned, that legal and compliance is an engine for growth, not a headwind yeah. that has to be overcome or a necessary evil. It should be a power that we have to compete successfully, to earn and maintain our customers' trust. All of the things that uh, here at Melio, we are very strongly aligned are key to our success. And so thinking in the future, I take it then if prioritizing what you're going to do and how you're going to focus on the future. It, it, it's it's presumably that's the touchstone. How do I become or my department become an engine or an accelerant of growth? Uh, again, I like that language. Um, we don't have too... It, it, there aren't too many opportunities for the legal team, the legal department to really be able to make an impact on growth. Um, a lot of them are still, unfortunately, seen as a cost center um, and as a, as a necessary evil. But if you can work out how your department can become an accelerant and enabler of growth, especially in a start, well, in any company, but especially in an earlier stage company, that's got to be a superpower. It, 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 I think it's, it's actually, Jim, I, I would... Uh, respectfully push back a little bit. I think it is right, inherent in the role. Uh, right. I think that by facilitating commercial engagements, we're an engine for growth. By providing customer experiences that can achieve security without uh, introducing friction that frustrates the customer's experience, uh, you're an engine for growth. Uh, I think uh, supporting the development of a culture that is engaged and enthusiastic about the mission, which everyone on the leadership team has that responsibility, not specific to general counsel, you're an engine for growth. And, and that's just the beginning of the list, Jim. I, I think the question is how you think about it and how you brand it and how you generate consensus around the things that are worth doing. And to be honest, in order to do that, you have to be willing to say, that's an exercise in formality we don't need for now. Like that gains credibility. But here's something we do need to do. Uh, and, and making those kinds of, of distinctions will, will, I think over time, build the consensus and confidence uh, necessary to, to make people feel like they are helpful. Because we don't have any time or resources to do things that aren't in the end of the day, furthering our mission to keep our customers, small businesses in business. Yep. JP, I'm going to wrap up with some of my favorite questions. The first one, which you might have heard before, advice that you would give to your 25-year-old self. So, you know, earlier in my career, 
I found myself being interested in the politics of the office, the politics of the organization. Uh, and in the Fed, there's a political overtone anyway. Uh, yep. And really, uh, while it's interesting and recreational, it's a distraction. And it's <laughs> uh, I would tell my 25-year-old self, Stick to your knitting, do your job, and let the leadership sort out whatever it is that needs to be sorted out. Yeah. Yeah, it's typically not time well spent. It's not energy well spent either, <laughs> is it? Um, the However you describe it, the office politics, the manoeuvring, the... Yeah, um, I, 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 think, um, uh, I think we've all probably suffered a little from wasting a little too much time on um on yeah on on the politics that don't actually make a difference um final question jp what what keeps you up at night now so I, i'm very happy to say jim i sleep well uh ah, I, I love uh, that i do <laughs> that's a superpower let me tell you <laughs> uh as uh, anyone's lawyer, I would tell them, make sure to get your sleep. Uh, maybe that's not strictly speaking legal advice, but I think it's good advice just the same. Uh, but, <laughs> good but advice. That, uh, you know, always thinking about the alligators closest to the boat, always thinking about making sure that we can solve the problems at hand. Those are the things that I wake up in the morning thinking about. I'm pleased to say we're not in a situation now where I'm being woken up at night, but usually in the morning, Jim, because Israel is seven hours ahead of us, every day when I wake up, there is a load of emails that have arrived while I was sleeping. Uh, so I open those up. I'm, I'm always like, what's going to be the next thing today? Is there something I wasn't aware of? Where's that thing that I was trying to get done yesterday? So it's really about current events. I don't have big overarching worries. I think we're on the right path. And I'm optimistic that we're going to be very successful and continue on the pattern of growth that we've enjoyed up until now. Final question, JP, and I haven't asked this one before, but um, I'm going to ask it because of just some personal curiosity. How many seconds between the time you wake up and the time you check your emails? Less than 60. <laughs> I've got to tell you, my answer is the same. It's an awful awful habit i'm trying to break it but i'm hopeless and i can't and my answer is also less than 60 jp on that note it's been fantastic speaking to you i've had an absolute blast thanks so much for joining me thank you jim i've enjoyed it as well thank you listeners for tuning into the show for more please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>